0: take your seat, and turn once again uh, to Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, we'll begin in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but we'll be looking at a, at a, at a number of, of texts as we look at this morning. Uh, you'll recall last week that we looked at the internal calling of, of a pastor, of an elder. When we, when we, we take a road trip as, as a family you may notice along the interstate there are mile markers, uh, particularly on interstates. There are mile markers as, as you go, and I always make frequent use of those. I'm one of those guys that's kind of constantly recalibrating and recalculating my ETA based on the mile markers. I know where I'm going, and I know where I've been. And I think it's helpful for us, particularly in, in a somewhat of a topical series, to sort of look at the mile markers as we go. And I mentioned last week there are four, I gave give you four C's. So there's some alliteration. There's a big-picture outline that's going to carry us over a seri- series of weeks, uh, calling, character, competence, and confession. So calling describes that both inward and outward calling of a minister of the gospel. Competence refers to those gifts and graces necessary to fulfill that work. Character, of course, de- describes his, the, the, the holiness that is manifest in the life of a man. And then confession describes what does he believe? What does he confess as true according to the scriptures? So today, just so you orient yourself with the mile markers, we're we're halfway through the first C. Uh, looking last week at the internal calling. And this week we'll consider the external calling. That's the title of today's message: the external call of, of a pastor. And you'll recall, I think, from last week that in 1 Timothy We pick up in chapter 3, but we're not picking up in a new thought. Paul's continuing a train of thought, he's continuing an argument by which he says, God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, we're first of all to pray. But second of all, the church is to be ordered in such a way because the church is the ambassadorship, it is the embassy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ declaring his kingdom to men, the church is to be organized in such a way that that message goes forth clearly and without equivocation. So then he begins with a calling of pastors. So that's where we will pick up. In order to take up the work of pastoral ministry, a man's God-given inward desire has to be paired with an external affirmation or an external confirmation from his church, of the necessary character, gifts, abilities, and doctrine. So three, three main points today. I'm going to read the text here in just a moment. I'm going to read chapter 3 of First Timothy 1 Timothy 1-7. through seven, But three main points. First two are questions. What do we mean by an external call? Or we might say an outward call. And during the sermon, I'll use those terms synonymously. External call, outward call, I mean the same thing. Who is responsible for this outward call? Who is responsible for this external call? And then thirdly, we're going to consider some warnings and some encouragements from the Word of God with respect to this process of a call, an external call of a pastor. So here together, uh, the Word of God. Listen as I read, because this is truly uh, the Word of God. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, or if someone does not know how to manage his own household. How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with, the, with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's think in the first place, what do we mean by an external call or an outward call? How do we think biblically when someone says, or you hear someone say, I want to be a pastor? Or how do you respond to someone who says they are called by God to preach the gospel and to serve as an elder in the church of Jesus Christ? How how do you individually, how do we corporately respond to such a statement? Is the testimony of an inward call This subjective call, inwardly, is that all that is necessary? Someone says, God has called me to preach. Is that the end of the story? Is that the end of the question? Here in 1 Timothy 3, the scriptures plainly speak of a man with a desire for the office of an overseer. But is that all that is necessary? And the scriptures give us the answer. And and it's unambiguous from the scriptures. The answer is no. The internal call is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Or not all by itself sufficient. It is necessary, but alone, that inward call, is not sufficient. It's not enough on its own to ordain a man to the office of ministry. There must be an outward, objective confirmation of the inward, subjective call to the ministry. And that is what we mean quite simply by outward call or inward call. There, there's, there's an outward objective affirmation, confirmation of that which is inwardly, subjectively experienced. Now, we know, we saw this last week, only the Lord can create that genuine and sustained inward call. There are a whole host of reasons that a man might desire the office, might desire a number of things about the office, but only the Lord can create a genuine pastoral calling that will endure. Only the Lord can do that. But that when he does so, that inward call then will be accompanied, not some of the time, but all of the time. It will be accompanied by the necessary gifts and graces for such a task. And it will be accompanied by discernible outward characteristics, aspects of a man's character, his abilities, and right beliefs. So let's think about a couple of texts that can help us think about this and think about the defining what we mean by this external call. And the first one is the text that's before us, one I've already read. And and again, we, we confess that the Word of God is everything that is expressly set down, but also that which is necessarily contained. So those necessary conclusions from the Word of God are also binding upon us as the authority of God's Word. So in First Timothy 3, verse 1, we see this inward call, this desire in the heart of a man to serve as a pastor, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to shepherd and love and serve his people. And then immediately after that, Paul says, therefore, an overseer must be, and he gives all of these qualifications. Now, in the next sermon, we'll look in, in more particular care at those individual qualifications, but let's think of them holistically as, as, a, as a basket of things right now. as as a composite, can a man really evaluate himself objectively in these areas? He can get a good start, but no man is able to evaluate himself fully in these ways. Somebody, someone, something outside of himself needs to be able to lay eyes upon him, evaluate these things, and say, brother, we see this, or we see some deficiencies here. Something outside of him has to be able to do that. So that's our first sort of plank in our argument. Also, let's turn to Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is consistent throughout his, his letters. Uh, uh, of seeing in his own life, and we'll see a, in, a, in a few moments, in Paul's own ministry experience, he submitted himself to this very same process of an external call notice what he says in Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. Paul is speaking about his what he calls his kinsmen according to the flesh, and his holy heart is grieving that many of his own fellow Jews have rejected Christ as the Messiah. And he's working through that, both personally and theologically, and he says this, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom... They've never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, Paul, he testifies to the Philippian church that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul understood how God worked among, among his covenant people. And on the Old Covenant, God had prophets that only he had appointed. God would call a prophet and say, Go and speak to my people in my name and tell them what I have said. Paul understood this, that the people of God don't hear from their God unless someone is sent to speak on God's behalf. Well, the question then is, who should be sent? Who should be sent? Well, the answer is those whose calling... Character, competence, and confession can be tested and can be examined against the objective, immovable, infallible, certain standard of the word of God. And it has to be done in such a way that there's demonstrable fruit that a congregation can actually observe. And again, throughout his letters, Paul communicates that the revealed will of God is made known through his written word. The will of God is this. No man calls or confirms himself to the gospel ministry. And see, we live in an age where that's, that's just that's a novel idea. But this was, this was just a settled understanding of all Protestant churches up until very, very recent history really in the the revival movement of the mid to late 19th centuries in America and England is is really the first time you see a a growing influence of people who were self-appointed and relied more upon an inward sense of calling rather than that objective external confirmation. 19th century pastor, for example, is a Baptist pastor named John Dagg writing in the 19th century, he says, Every man who believes alone that he is called of God to the ministry has reason to apprehend that he is under delusion. If he finds that those who give proof that they honor God and love the souls of men do not discover his ministerial qualifications, he has reasons to suspect that they do not exist. Those are plain words. They're hard words, but they're plain words. And this was, this was not controversial when he wrote that. It only becomes controversial in a, in a very modern experientialist kind of, of atmosphere where I feel something and that makes it true. Now, I don't have to, you don't have to use much of your imagination to think about other areas in our culture where somebody just thinks something and becomes true. I just feel, I just identify in a certain way, and it's true. Well, I, So I identify as a pastor. Well, does that make it true? I hope not. There needs to be an external confirmation. And we need to recognize that's that's not a restraining thing. That's a blessed thing in God's plan for his church. And this may sound harsh for, for, for men like Dag to say, if he finds that those who give proof that they honor God and love the souls of man do not discover his ministerial qualifications, he has reason to suspect that they do not exist. And that can strike our ears as harsh, but I promise you, for that man and his family, that's a long-term blessing. To tell a man, brother, relieve yourself of that obligation. For your sake, for your family's sake, for your church's sake. Relieve yourself of that burden. The calling of a pastor is not the same as it was under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, how was a prophet called? Immediately, by God. You Remember, remember Samuel? He was a young man, and in the middle of the night, Samuel, Samuel, well, here I am, and he goes, to runs to Eli. And Eli said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And, and three times this happens. This was God's voice immediately, directly calling him. God doesn't do that anymore. Those, those ways of God revealing himself have ceased. But his active work in calling men to the ministry has not ceased. The way that he does it has changed. The Spirit of the Lord now works through His Word, through that objective, certain, immovable standard of His Word. The Spirit works through that Word in such a way that it produces first a desire and an aspiration in the heart of a man, and it produces in him the skills and the gifts necessary for gospel ministry. And the Spirit does this in such a way that it will be evident not only to that own, to, to the man, as he kind of looks in the mirror, so to speak, and he sees these things in him, in himself, but others around him will see and notice it. The Spirit of, the, of God will communicate a call to pastoral ministry, both to that man and also to the church. And again, last week we thought about and looked at the inward call, that inward desire that's produced by the Spirit. Now we, we think about how that Inward call works itself out outwardly, externally, how it's made known both to the man and to his church. So we have to labor in the Scriptures. And see, there's a temptation at this point. For us to read a passage like 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, or Titus chapter 1, where Paul again gives qualifications for elders, and there's a couple temptations that happen. There are men here in this room who can look at this and say, I I am fairly certain God is not calling me to ministry. I, I don't desire that. And and you know what? There's no deficiency in you at all. Not having that kind of desire and that call. None whatsoever. But there's a temptation to look at that and say, well, since it doesn't apply immediately to me, I don't need to, to study these things and understand them. There's also a temptation among our ladies, the godly ladies in this room, who have submitted themselves to the will of Christ, revealed in the word of Christ, and they say, I know for certain I'm not called to be a pastor because God has said that pastors are to be men. So I can look at 1 Timothy 3 and kind of, well, that's that's great that God's talked to some men about that, but it doesn't apply to me. Well, see, you'd be wrong to think that. Because we're going to look here in the next section when we ask the question of who is responsible for this external call. The answer is every member of Christ's church needs to understand these things, needs to be conversant in them, needs to understand how these, these apply in such a way that I can I can begin to look and pray for and cultivate and affirm men among me in my own church that God may be calling to pastoral ministry. So we need to labor in the Scriptures to understand the necessity of of the inward call, but but also how that that same inward call has to be matched and paired with an external call. So we have to avoid the temptation to think that this is something merely subjective or, or mystical. There must be an external and outward call to confirm that. But that's the second point that we'll wrestle with now. The second question is, who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for it? And I think you already know the answer. I'm going to give it to you anyway. We, we may ask, well, who, who's responsible for affirming? And we might, you know, and I, I, the answer in probably many sectors of professing churches, Protestant churches in the United States and the West, is the answer would be that individual man, well, or woman. If he or she says she's called of God, then who could argue with that? So one answer is the individual is responsible. Now, I hope you've already seen that's, that's not true. That can't be the answer. What about someone close to him who knows him really well? A wife, a mentor, an older brother in the faith, someone who knows him really well, and he said, I see that. And individually, I can affirm his external call. Is that the right answer? Or how about his family? What about a mission agency? Or another parachurch ministry? What about a denomination? Or an association of churches? What about a seminary or a Bible college? I mean, and we, and we can see throughout History, we can see even in recent days how any or all of these institutions may play the decisive role. And some would say, My denomination has ordained me, or My mission society has ordained me. All those agencies might be helpful. A man's individual assessment, his wife or someone close to him, his family, his uh, his his church, or his, his um, church association, or his denomination, his seminary, may, may all be helpful in him evaluating things. And certainly we can point to places and circumstances in which God has used those various institutions and agencies. But no entity, no institution, no group, no authority in all of the world has the authorization by Jesus Christ to ordain a man to the gospel ministry except one a local church. That's it. In the entire planet, there is only one entity authorized by King Jesus to appoint an ambassador, to be a head of one of his embassies. And that's the local church. So we have to go to the scriptures. Again, we go back to our objective standard to determine what we ought to do. Again, we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing here to Timothy, he's writing to an individual, but he's writing to an individual as an evangelist over a particular church. It's this church happens to be in Ephesus. So he's writing, as it were, I heard one con- I couldn't quote which one, but it was a commentator I read years ago. So we ought to read First and 2 Timothy, knowing that Paul wrote them to Timothy, but the church is looking over his shoulder while he reads the letter. I think it's a good way to think about it. This is written to an individual, but it's, it's actually written instructively to an entire church and to our church. So we go to 1 Timothy, and Paul says, we'll see this in chapter 4, that, or at the end of chapter 3, I would hope to come to you soon, but I've been, but in case I'm delayed, I want to write to you so that right away, urgently, you, be, you can begin to put in place as a church those things that are necessary for you to be the household of God how you ought to conduct yourself, how you ought to behave in the church of God, which is the house of God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So we go to the scriptures, and according to the scriptures, only the church has been tasked by her Lord Jesus Christ with testing and affirming and sending men for gospel ministry. Turn me back to the left in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Here we find Barnabas has been laboring at a church in Antioch. Antioch is a predominantly Gentile church. And Barnabas had gone and and fetched Paul, brought him to Antioch to serve among the people there. And we pick up the narrative in, in Acts 13. I'm, not, I'm in another 13, not Acts 13. Give me just a second. In Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, <clears throat> let's pick up the very last verse of, of chapter 12. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And thus begins Paul's missionary journey's. Paul and Barnabas are laboring in Antioch. There are, there are prophets, there are teachers, there are pastors there that God has called among a Gentile church. This is remarkable. And the Spirit of God, while they are praying and fasting, speaks to the church and says, Paul and Barnabas are set apart for this work. And the church evaluates that, lays hands on them, and sends them. I mean, Think about this. This is the mighty Apostle Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he submits himself to a Gentile church to confirm his calling. I mean, ethnically, historically, that's somewhat shocking that a Jew such as Paul, no one was more eminently more trained. No one had the kind of scholarship, the kind of pedigree that Paul did. And yet some Gentiles laid their hands on him and sent him out. This shows, first of all, Paul's humility, but also shows the church's understanding of their role in the sending out of Paul. Listen to Pastor Brian Croft. He's commenting here on this particular passage in Acts 13. He said, the church and its leaders had certainty of God's call because they had already witnessed the fruitfulness of these men's past labors among them. They were able to affirm them not only by God's guidance through his spirit, but by their own experience in serving and ministering alongside Saul and Barnabas. Now, the question may come to your mind. It's come to my mind many times as I've looked at this passage. In what way did the Holy Spirit say to the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas? Now, because of where we were in the stage of Acts, it may have been audibly. Early on in the book of Acts, God is still working immediately. The canon of Scripture is not yet completed and closed. It may be that the Spirit spoke through one of the prophets that was there at Antioch. But do we have prophets among us? I hope you answer no. You should answer no. We have no prophets among us. We have no apostles among us. That age has ceased. God's way of speaking to us in those former ways has ceased. But does that mean that God, the Spirit, doesn't speak to his church any longer? No, now he speaks to his word. And he speaks to the cultivation of wisdom within the hearts of his people. So it is no less the case now that God still speaks and calls through his church as the only authorized sending agency for pastors and missionaries. See, the whole church here in Antioch was able to see the outward evidence of the internal call of God upon Paul and Barnabas. The whole church was able to see that. And and this is critical for us to understand, not only as, as men who are potentially called but also as a church body who has the unique responsibility of evaluating, of weighing out, of testing the gifts and graces. I mean, even the mighty apostle Paul submitted himself in this manner. So let's think about this. If Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the most highly educated in the place, submitted himself to to a Gentile church, then, then which one of us as men would say, I, I can do this on my own? Doesn't make sense, does it? So God has given objective measurements or requirements for office holders, including elders, that, that have to be evaluated. It is the church who has that responsibility. And churches for centuries have used this language of affirmation or confirmation or simply an outward call. So what should the church look for? Okay, so that the church has the responsibility. I think is unambiguous from the scriptures, but what does the church look for? Is the church just thinking about, okay, this is our job, this is our responsibility, every member of the church has this, male, female alike, has this responsibility. What should a church look for? Now, the longer answer will occur over the next couple of sermons. As we look more particularly at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Acts chapter, I mean in, in um, Titus chapter 1. But we can say in summary, as we look back at those headings of character, of competence, and confession. From the scriptures, we can see the shorter answer is this. A man who believes he is called by the Lord to preach and to shepherd God's people should seek an outward confirmation from his brothers and sisters in this church that he possesses the necessary characteristics and abilities to serve in that capacity. Now, my study this week, I I came across some instruction from the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And I think this is really helpful. I hope it's an encouragement to to you. It was to me. I was thinking about how to to articulate this, and I think it would have taken me two pages to say what he says in in one paragraph. But but Spurgeon is answering that question. What does a church look for? How does a church take seriously this call to evaluate a man and to what should they look? What kinds of characteristics? Listen to Spurgeon. He says, I do not ask whether you are much instructed or learned or, or all that, but I ask you these questions. Have you tried to address a Sabbath school? Have you gained the attention of the children? Having tried to address a few people when they have been gathered together, have you found they would listen to you after you have preached? Had you any evidence and any sign that would lead you to believe that souls were blessed under you? Did any of the saints of God who were spiritually minded tell you that their souls were fed by your sermon? Did you hear of any sinner convinced of sin? Have you any reason to believe that you have had a soul converted under you? If not, if you will take one's advice for what it is good for, and I believe it is advice which God's Holy Spirit would have me give you, you had better give it up. You will make a very respectable Sunday school teacher. You will do very well in a great many other ways, but unless these things have been known by you, unless you have these evidences, you may say you have been called in all that. I don't believe it. If you had been called to preach, there would have been some evidence and some sign of it. It's very practical, isn't it? In in whatever opportunities a man has, whether he's been asked to teach a Sunday school class or lead a prayer meeting or or, or teach in informal capacities. Do people, are people edified? Are their souls stirred? Is, 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 is there evidence of fruitfulness even in those early stages of ministry? See, many men considered for the office of elder have to demonstrate an outward evidence of an inward call by God. And the fruit of a man's desire and, and calling ought to be visible. It ought to be demonstrated tangibly. uh, First of all, at his example of of service, of humility, of, of steadfastness and faithfulness to his church body. It ought to be demonstrated in a sacrificial attitude, faithful attendance, his current labors in the body of Christ, according to those opportunities that he's already been given. Our Lord Jesus said he is faithful in a little, will be faithful in much. And and the necessary correlation of that is those who's unfaithful in a little, is it reasonable for us to expect that all of a sudden he will be faithful in much? Listen to what our confession says. This is describing this process by which a a church is to consider her duty corporately to affirm a man's call to the ministry. I'm going to highlight two paragraphs in our confession. This is in chapter 26. And again, this our confession does not make anything true that wasn't already true from the Word of God. This, this is not the source of our authority, but it is authoritative because it says and summarizes what we believe the Bible teaches. So in paragraph 9, paragraph 8 just simply says that the churches that are gathered and assembled according to the mind of Christ ought to have an orderly have an orderliness among them, including members and officers, and those officers being deacons and elders. In paragraph 9, it says, "...the way or the manner or the procedure, the method appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself." Suffrage is just an old word that means common consent or vote or affirmation of the church itself. And solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein, and of a deacon, that he be chosen by like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. So Christ has ordained a means, a manner, a way in which men are recognized. First of all, they have to be fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit. So that's that inward call. But then that inward call has to be recognized by the church, by the common suffrage of the church. This is not, we, we are not, we are not, um, we're not the church in Rome who has a secret council of secret men who have a secret ceremony and they wait for the secret smoke to come out to tell us who the new pope is. It's public. And every member of Christ's church has a responsibility to say, do I understand the scriptures? Have I studied these things? Have I, have I got, spent the time to get to know my brothers, those among me, and those who have expressed a desire to preach, to teach, to shepherd God's people? Have I, have I made the effort to get to know these men? And to see, are, are their gifts and graces observable? Are they plain?" Then, let's turn over to paragraph 11. In this same chapter, this was something that was added by our Baptist forefathers, and I think this is a necessary thing. I think it's a wonderful expression of what the Scriptures teach. Paragraph 11 says, though, although it be incumbent upon the bishops or pastors, remember, this term is interchangeable. Bishops, pastors, elders, all this, this, this synonym for the very same thing. Although it be incumbent upon the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching the word by way of office, Yet the work of preaching the word is not so peculiarly confined to them, but that others also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. So in other words, again, we have some, some of the quaint kind of Elizabethan English here, to be instant in preaching doesn't mean they're, they're fast at it. Y'all would say, David, you're out, of, you're disqualified. <clears throat> Doesn't mean that. But it does mean ready. Doesn't mean, it means enabled, prepared to preach. But that enabling, that preparation, that skill is not confined only to those who hold the office of pastor. We recognize there are laymen. There are gifted, godly men among us. To whom God may have given skills to preach and to proclaim His word. Now, notice the internal and external call still abides, still is a necessity of being fitted and gifted by the Spirit and approved and called by the church. See, that's still the external call. Now, what does this do? Well, this guards us from the Lone Ranger, doesn't it? It guards us from the self appointed, even itinerant preacher. Who we said, well, I'm not a pastor. I just teach and preach whenever, whenever and wherever I want to. But I'm not a pastor. I don't want that kind of responsibility and burden. Um, I would rather kind of cohabitate rather than marry someone, you know? I want the privileges and not the responsibilities. It guards the church against such a thing. But it also allows for a much greater variety of gifts. Because in God's providence, not every man who has been given Who's been given spirit, given gifts, to teach and preach, is able for whatever reason to accept the responsibilities of office. But we don't want the church to be deficient of those gifts. So you see, this is—I think it's very wise, and I think it's very scriptural—what our Baptist fathers added in. So we see this a summary of what we believe the scriptures teach. Now, as we think about summaries of what we teach, the scriptures teach, and the question of how does this thing work out. What does this look like in practice? Let's let's drill down a little bit more detailed. Let's look at a little more street level where we are specifically at GFPC Conroe. On our back table, there's I think there's a copy printed out of our of our bylaws. We have not only a, we have the scriptures, which is our norming norm. It is our supreme source of authority. It is the only authority we have in spiritual matters that is certain, sufficient, and infallible. We have a confession of faith that we believe rightly articulates what the scriptures teach, that we have bylaws that simply govern us. It is a written agreement for the sake of integrity among us. How do we practice these things? What does this look like? So I'm going to quote from you directly from our bylaws with respect to the calling of elders. This is in Article 3, Section 3. In our, You can look this up on your own if you want to. This is the elder selection process from within the congregation. The process by which elders are nominated and appointed to the body of elders is as follows. Number one, men who desire the office of elder and believe God has called them to such labors shall make their desire known to the elders privately. Number two, the elders shall set aside men that they determine have met the qualifications and gifting of the office of elder. They shall be declared as being under consideration. Thirdly, The elder shall then make it known to the church that a particular individual, a particular man, is being considered as a candidate for the office of elder. Fourthly, for a period of time, not less than 28 days, four weeks, the congregation will have opportunity prayerfully to consider the individual's qualifications for the office of elder. If members for any reason feel that the person may be unqualified, they should go to him in love and discretion and privately discuss their concerns... If, after discussion with the nominee, the members feel that their concern is unresolved, then they should approach the elders with their concern. During that time that a man is under consideration, there are several options. Option one, the man under consideration can withdraw himself from consideration and the process will cease. Option two, the elders may deem the man unqualified and the process would cease. Thirdly, Option three, the man and the elders agree that the process should continue. So the fifth step would be, after a time of consideration, the elders shall call a special meeting for the purpose of securing the formal affirmation of the congregation regarding the man under consideration. Number six, after prayerful consideration of the consent of the congregation, the elders shall vote and make known their decision regarding the man And upon elder body approval, the elders will arrange for his ordination if necessary, and the man shall immediately assume his position as an elder. So again, it's it's an an attempt to be an orderly, practical expression of what the scriptures teach regarding this external call. Now, we have an important footnote. I think it's a helpful one. In this whole section, and I'm going to read the footnote, it says, in the absence of a plurality of elders. Again, that's not a hypothetical situation, is it? we have one and only one elder at GFPC Conroe currently, in the absence of a plurality of elders or other extenuating circumstances, so in the event of one or zero elders. The sole elder or other leadership in the church shall consult with the elders of another church or churches in formal association with GFBC Conroe and holding to our same confession of faith and report the counsel received to the church body for consideration. So in other words, again, this isn't hypothetical if we have a man that is under consideration, we have in our bylaws that that man shall be examined by some of the elders within our association. Now, why? Why is that? Primarily because only you who know him and live among him and work among him and and fellowship with him can really understand his character and and have a, a, a sense of his gifts and graces. But you may not be able to evaluate fully his doctrinal positions. And wouldn't it be helpful to have, not because the decision rests with our association, but it's advice. It's non-binding. But the way this often works in practice is there's an ordination council and, and a group of pastors within our association holding the same confession of faith. Interview a man. It might, it might take a half a day or longer and interview him and ask him all kinds of, of questions. And then there's a letter that's formed, proposed and, and sent to a church, that local church, and said, we, we see a consistency in his doctrine. We, we see a, a consistency in his answers with respect to the scriptures and our confession. And that ought to embolden and encourage a church, that he is, he's, he's growing and, and thriving doctrinally. We had one not long ago, where it was one of our sister churches who had an ordination, asked for help, an ordination council for a young man. And in the, that process, there were some answers that he gave theologically that were not as clear as we had hoped for them to be. Now, he was not in any way disqualified. Uh, he was ordained uh, just as they had hoped and scheduled, but we were able to co- give feedback to him, to his co-elder, and to the church that said, he needs to focus on a couple of things here. Uh, Calvin has been making some knives, and he and I were talking about this yesterday. He's working on some knife blanks, and he's, he's honing and shaping the blade, and he brought them to me, and we're looking at it, and looking at it very closely under the right kind of light, It's like, okay, this looks really good, This part here needs a little more work, a little more honing right here. See, that can happen within an ordination council. This is is a good-looking project. Don't throw the knife away. Don't throw the tool away. This is good, but needs some work right here. Needs some some special care, special attention in this particular place. So it can be a rich blessing to a church. The other thing, it protects a church from a brother-in-law kind of deal. It, it, It protects you from your solo pastor saying, this is the guy. He's qualified. You don't even need to question that. There's a layer of protection. But there's also another layer of protection. It protects your solo pastor from being, having an unqualified man forced upon him as a co-elder from the congregation. So it goes both ways. Not because, again, I'm not being inconsistent by saying only the local church can ordain a man. And, and externally affirm his call. I'm committed to that, that precept from the scriptures. The input from our association is advisory, it's not binding. The church can do with it whatever it wishes. Now, we would be foolish to have a, a, a group of godly men say, This brother is not ready. We would be unwise as a church but we would have the right to do that. It doesn't undermine the authority of this local church. So understanding what the scriptures teach about inward and outward calling really ought to be an encouragement to all of us. It ought to encourage us. It ought to embolden us. It should encourage the whole church that Christ rules and shepherds his church. He is not an absent God. He is not an absent Lord. And he is, even in this particular task of choosing men, to shepherd, to lead, to give oversight and care for his people. Our Savior is right here. He is actively engaged. He's on the scene. And we ought to praise our great God for his provision, for his body in this way. We ought to praise the giver. And it should encourage any man who, who may be, be stirred to consider himself a, as a possible pastor. Because the, the reality is we all struggle. We all struggle to discern the will of God, and particularly on something that's, that's so weighty. And the doctrine and practice of waiting upon an external call gives us confidence that God will use his local church as a means of confirming that. So for a man to submit himself openly, willingly to the, 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 the kind-hearted, Christ-loving scrutiny of his brothers and sisters ought to be a welcome thing. It ought to be an encouraging thing. And it gives us confidence that God is going to use his local church as, as a means of confirming and establishing that call. And then having done so, how much greater confidence can a man have entering into the gospel ministry knowing that my brothers and sisters affirm this, they see this in me, not so that he can be puffed up, but so that he is, he is protected in some measure from the slings and fiery darts of the enemy who will no doubt come, who will no doubt Whisper in his ear at night, you are not fit for this. You shouldn't be here. You should quit. Who, did, who called you to this? And he can say in his own conscience, my church called me to this. The Lord has called me and my church affirmed this. Many men have avoided the burden of entering in ministry without being called by the very means of submitting themselves to a loving, familial kind of scrutiny of their local church. Now briefly, let's think about some warnings and also some encouragements that Christ gives to us in his word regarding this process. And we're still here in 1 Timothy, but I want you to turn over to your right a little bit to chapter 5. Beginning of verse 17, again, Paul's still giving instruction to the church here in Ephesus through Timothy. And he gives three primary exhortations, exhortations slash (laughs) warnings. First, let's look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the instruction to the church, the exhortation to the church, is when you give your external affirmation to a man, to the gospel ministry, and especially if this is going to be his full-time vocation, the church then takes up the responsibility of providing for that man and for his family. That's the the, the clear implications from the Scripture, the clear commands. And Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament and also leaning on the light of nature. And even the ox doesn't get muzzled when he treads out the corn. And Paul says in another place, those who preach the gospel have every right to make their living from it. So that's the first exhortation, is that in this process of, of external call, those who, in Paul's language... Those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, especially those for whom this is their only occupation. This is their exclusive vocation. They ought to be able to make their living from the work that they do. There's a second exhortation. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So what is Paul saying? He's guarding against two different errors here. He's guarding against the error, pardon me, on the one hand of putting a pastor on a pedestal, putting him in a place where he's above the law, so to speak, where he's above scrutiny, where he's above accountability, that whole touch-not-God's-anointed kind of mindset. There's an error here that has to be avoided, where a pastor is, I mean, he's the pastor, he's called of God, I mean, we, we affirm that, we all voted on that, so now we, I mean, who, who can question anything anymore? That's not true. A pastor is not above the law. And Paul says very plainly, those who persist in sin. And I'm not talking about those who who reveal that they are, in fact, still men who are being sanctified. Men who still sin. Those who persist in it. Those who will not repent. Those who will not turn from their errors. Either doctrinally or in terms of their character and morality. So that's one side of the error. The opposite error is the other way. The pastor is neither to be on a pedestal nor a doormat. So, pastor, he says, "Don't make the other error and say that the pastor is not su- is not doesn't have the privilege of due process that every other member has." As a pastor, there's a bullseye from the enemy we know for sure, from those outside, but sadly, sometimes from within. And and what Paul's saying is, don't even hear the charge. If that charge cannot be substantiated by two or more witnesses according to the law, that's, and again, by the way, that's the standard that applies to every member, don't even entertain it. Don't even hear it. And that means not only formally, he's not speaking only to Timothy or to, Tim, or to the co-pastors or some formal counsel. Even to every church member in a casual setting, there's an accusation made against your pastor. The Word of God tells you if there are not two credible witnesses who can confirm this, you're not even to receive it. Don't even hear it. So the exhortation here with respect to this external call is avoid the equal but opposite errors. Don't put him on a pedestal. Don't think he's above the law. But don't think he's below the law either. Don't think because he's in charge that everybody has a right to make any accusation they want, whether it's credible or not. Third, third, not accusation, third (laughs) exhortation. Verse 22. Do not be hasty. In the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Here's the warning don't be hasty in calling new pastors take your time, do the necessary diligence. Not all sins, Paul says, and deficiencies of character or gifting are noticeable right away. I mean, you know, that you, you've known some men and, and women too, that their sins, you can spot them at 100 yards away. You, you know right away this, this brother is not, not cut out to be a pastor. Well, Paul says, but give us some time. Some men are pretty smooth. I mean, you 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 know you've met people, the, that silver tongued devil, the guy who can talk his way out of anything, but he's not a holy man. He's not a godly man, and he may come across as being wow. He I mean he he got all this scripture memorized and, and he he seems so so smart and eloquent. Those are the kind of men you, you want to have, if they're holy men, if they're godly men. And Paul warns the church, take your time because not all sins are obvious. Now that just makes good, plain common sense, doesn't it? But Paul recognizes this is weighty. In fact, I, I, for years I struggled to understand, in fact, in the, in the ESV in verse 23, it's in parentheses, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In my mind, here's the scene. Paul. We know Paul would often use a secretary. So Paul would dictate the letter, And someone else is writing it down. And Paul is now moving to this process of the external call. And he's saying, don't be hasty in doing this. Then he says, by the way, Timothy, how's your stomach? Because this is gut-wrenching stuff. This is heavy. Drink a little wine to settle your nerves. It may take that. These, These things can cause you, literally, to tie your stomach up in knots. Because these are weighty matters, and and he's, he's warning them, don't 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 have partiality. Because these may be your friends, these may be brothers that you love dearly, but there is there is there's a real deficiency, and somebody's got to have the courage to say, brother, this is not for you, or at least not now. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. See, there's a real sense in which the responsibility for a man's future failures as pastor lays at the feet of the church, and especially at the feet of the current pastors who would lay hands on him if they fail to give due discernment. Now, we're not omniscient. Churches throughout history have, have made grave errors, some of them because of their own carelessness, others because nothing could be, nothing was discernible at the time. But in the midst of this warning... In the midst of this warning, Paul uncovers a potential gem that's side by side with this warning. And I love this. He's warning about being hasty because sins sometimes are hidden and they they, they come out later. That's also true with giftings, it's also true with gifts and skills and graces. Some gifts are easy to spot, others are inconspicuous. I've spent some time today in the book of Acts, but think about this. Don't turn there. But in in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, Luke introduces us to a man named Apollos. Remember Apollos? Think about the words that Luke uses to describe Apollos. He was described as eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, powerful in his preaching, and bold in refuting argumentation. Now, you hear a man like Apollos, and everybody in the church goes, wow, this man is gifted. This man can teach, and, and, and it's plain to everyone. You know Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and, and, and helped perfect his doctrine, but no one questioned this man's gifts. From the first time that he shows up in Ephesus and begins to preach, no one questioned his gifts. I've had opportunity to hear a couple of our young men in, in, uh, at IRBS, in seminary, and, and I, I, sometimes I hear them, and I want to hang it up. Because I, I see the evident gifts in these men, young men, who've who yet even be matured yet. But the reality is, few men are like Apollos. Very, very few men are like Apollos. So if Apollos becomes the standard for a church, we're in trouble, aren't we? We will our cupboard will be bare with respect to potential pastors and elders. The church should be patient and diligent in in waiting to discover the gifts that maybe are not quite as obvious. There might be a man who who doesn't wow you the first time you hear him teach or preach. But you know. You know he's a faithful man. You know he's a godly man. And perhaps you know a man who's who's not a, a dynamic orator. He doesn't just naturally captivate the ears, but he is clear. He's organized in his thinking and his speaking. And and maybe he's not that, you know, command of the room kind of personality. But when you speak with him regarding the word of God, you take notice. And you know other people take notice. There's something, something different. He makes insights. He makes observations that help you apply God's word. It helps you understand things better. He's eager to study. He's eager to see the Word of God applied in the lives of his brothers and sisters. He loves to dig deep into the study of God's Word and you see the fruit within his own family of his gospel labors there. Church, keep an eye on that one. Keep an eye on such a man. That's precisely... That's precisely the kind of man that God tends to raise up among us. I remember hearing Alistair Begg, this was years and years ago. He it was, in a, in a, I think, in a, in a pastor's conference lecture. And he's describing being in his undergraduate program and there was a classroom environment and they're all kind of going around the room. What, what, do, you want to, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And he said, well, I, I think I want to be a pastor. And his classmates laughed at him. I mean, he was a man of small stature. I mean, we love his accent, but there was nothing special about his voice. In Scotland, it was—I mean, he was one of many. There was nothing physically impressive about him. But if you've heard Alistair, beg, you—you know he really can preach. And he's had years and years and years, decades of faithful ministry. And I think too about young men among us. I think there's maybe a particular uh, exhortation, encouragement here. To the church of Jesus Christ. Think about a young man who grows up in the church, and people can still remember his youthful folly. They, they, they remember how that folly was, was exposed, but, but now he's grown. He's walking with the Lord. Maybe he's even started his own family. but He's taking on a responsibility. We're, he's growing right in front of our eyes, and now he says, I want to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified." But some in the church go, yeah, but we remember that time he got in trouble with the potluck. And that's all we can think about. We failed to take an account. The Lord may have his finger upon him yet. He might still be in our eyes an unreliable teenage boy. But the Lord is moving in him. And Paul says, not so fast. Don't count him out just yet. Don't count him out just yet sure his gifts are raw his graces are undeveloped he's still green but be patient with him paul says there might be gold there among that dross so there's a warning don't be hasty in the laying on of hands but he also says don't be hasty in dismissing someone of casting a judgment says, i've known too much about this guy and I, there's just no way if you'd known Saul of Tarsus would you have said he was fit I mean, even those when Paul, when, when Paul got knocked off his horse, the blinding light, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was led into Jerusalem by the hand because he couldn't even see for three days. And the men there did not want to receive him because they knew who he was. They had heard all about it. But God had called him. My time is, is gone. Let's, let's give our attention to some application. How do we we apply these things? How do we think about these things as a church? First of all, pray. Pray that God will raise up men and and make their calling known among us. Pray that he will exercise his lordship in that particular way. Call upon the Lord of the harvest. Men, young men, if your heart is stirred as you hear these things, act upon what you believe to be the Spirit of God at work in you. The, the, The doctor of the external call doesn't mean that you just sit around and twiddle your thumbs until such a time as the church will call you. How are they going to call you if they've not seen anything? Take advantage of the opportunities that you have. So there's that, again, those equal and opposite errors. We can, on the one side, depend upon a subjective call alone, end up jumping headlong in, into a gospel ministry, untested and unconfirmed. But then on the other hand, we attempt to just be idle and just wait on something to happen. Pursue the opportunities you have to serve God's people and particularly to serve them with his word. Practice sacrificing your time. Practice sacrificing your gifts and using those for the good of others. For all members, study these passages. Study the scriptures. Even if you're convinced God has not called you, the Lord may give you the privilege of encouraging his call of a man near to you. Another one I think that is long for the long-term health of the church is, is vital, and it's this. Speak well of the pastoral ministry in your home. Speak well of the pastoral ministry in your home. You don't know if God may call your son to be a minister of the gospel or to have your wife Marry one who's called to preach the gospel. I, I love my mother dearly, but when I was growing up, she told me repeatedly, there were three things she never wanted me to be: a firefighter, a police officer or a pastor. I understand her motives behind it. She wanted to protect family life. But it delayed me, in significant ways. Speak well of the pastoral ministry. You don't speak well of me. Speak well of the ministry. Puritan pastor John Flavel said this, O brother, O brethren, who, who would not study and pray and spend and be spent in the service of such a bountiful master? Is it not worth all our labors and sufferings? to come with all those souls we instrumentally begat to Christ and all that we edified, established, confirmed, and comforted in the way to heaven and say, Lord, here am I and the children they ha- thou hast given me. To hear one spiritual child say, Or this is the minister by whom I believed. Another, this is he by whom I was edified, established, and comforted. This is the man that resolved my doubts. Quickened to my dying affections, reduced my soul when wandering from the truth. And, and, and if I can be so bold, can I add to Flavel's thoughts, kind of in that same vein? Lord, here is the church member who encouraged me, who prayed for me when I doubted my calling to feed your sheep. Lord. Here are the brothers and sisters who encourage me to improve my gifts, to study diligently, to learn to proclaim more clearly the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps your own son may one day say, Lord, here is the father who instructed me, disciplined me, taught me self-control, spoke of our pastor in such a way that I found myself aspiring to shepherd your people. Or, Lord, here is the mother who loved me, modeled for me faithfulness to your to her family and to your church, and then who encouraged me to consider your calling to the gospel ministry. May the Lord give us ears to understand and hearts who are eager uh, to take heed uh, to God's word to us this morning. Amen. Let's pray together, and then we will stand and respond in... Uh, in song once again. Our Father, and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a certain sufficient and infallible guide for us. Lord, I I pray that you will help us in in a day in which your word seems contrary even sometimes to the practice of Christian churches. I, I pray first of all that you will conform us as your people here in this place to your word. Grant to us an eagerness to believe and and obey it. And also pray for a revival in our land. I pray that your churches will return uh, to to the good old paths clearly infallibly presented to us in your word. Lord, we pray uh, not only for our church today, but we pray for the succeeding generations. We pray for those who will come after us that you will provide faithful, eager men to herald the gospel of your Son. We ask all this in His name.